Okay, everyone. Do we have any questions or thoughts left over from last week? Um, I know that I uh, went on a little uh, digression last week talking about sensitivity and guidance and various things like that. And I didn't re-listen to it, but there was one point I wanted to make clear about um, the question of sensitivity. You know, and maybe I said this, but maybe I didn't, and I just wanted to make sure I did say it properly. Being sensitively aware of your environment and developing the capacity to feel things deeply is a virtue. Um, But insofar as that sensitivity limits your ability to serve, it becomes a weakness. And what I, I wanted to make very clear is that it's not like a person solves that problem becoming less sensitive. It was just the realization in my mind that, which I really wanted to make clear, that I was making a virtue of the weakness, of it as a weakness. You know, that therefore I can't do this, therefore I can't do that. And that's really not at all what God expects of us. You know, great saints and masters are, this is what I was talking about when I was talking about master, they just absorb all energies into themselves because they have no... um, It, they have no fear, is actually the word. I was having a conversation with someone this afternoon about why we become agitated when we're in the presence of certain energies. And I, this is just my own explanation, but I think it's valid. I know that we judge in others that which we have inside ourselves. And we judge it because it reminds us of our own limitation and we have a desire to expunge it in ourselves, and therefore we think if we can expunge it in the environment around us, it will free us from it. It's the Vaisha way of thinking, if I can make my environment match what I want it to match, then I'll feel okay. That's the Vaisha, the second caste level of trying to find happiness. The Kshatriya level is I'll control myself. But when we need to make the world a certain way, we're operating on a delusion because the world never will. But it, it's interesting what you end up judging and feeling the need to condemn and push away is always instructive because it, it's not to say that you are indifferent to wrong action when you see it and evil or adharma when you see it, but there's a certain agitation that comes in when it's personal. That's the difference between discrimination and judgment. And I mean, I, we can go on that for a long time, but I, if I need to, I can explain it. But I think you understand. But it's also, it's like, if, if there's a vritti inside of me that is, is somewhat dissonant from truth, and somebody presents that same vritti to me, then it, it goes into me. But if I don't have that vritti, I can merely observe it. But if I have it, then the two energies combine and that's where the uh, vulnerability is created. Which is why Swami Kriyananda could be anywhere and be unaffected because he didn't have any vrittis. You know, all his energy was unified in his commitment to God. He wasn't, he had no, he wasn't protecting any limited reality. I mean, that's how he even described himself. I came here to overcome my ego. I didn't come here to protect it. 
And so he would never defend himself. When we were in litigation, he had some actually very serious moral questions that he had to work through in his own mind to defend even the lawsuit itself. The two that we were in, he said, if he'd been alone, he wouldn't have even defended it. He would have just let it run its course. But there were hundreds of other people who had come to depend on him, so he had to think about us as well as himself. But there was nothing in him that he had to protect. Whereas I certainly, speaking from what my own experience is like, there's an enormous number of vulnerabilities. And if something comes too close to one of those vulnerabilities, even before I can even think about it, I've, I've closed over it, and I'm just having to do something to protect it. Even just on my, uh, my, my driver's license expired this year, and by the time I'd been out of town, by the time I got the notice, it, had, it needed to be renewed on or before my birthday, and the only date was my actual birthday. So, oh boy, on my birthday I get to go to the DMV, you know, which is a whole other experience. But they, they have this new California identification called a real ID. And of course, since I had to get it, I thought I'll get one of those. Somehow I missed the memo and I'm standing there. You know, and you're, it's, not, it's not my favorite place to be, although it was not as bad as I feared it might be. And, uh, but I didn't have all the right papers because I missed a piece of it. And I became quite upset. And it was, it was really just amazing to me that it just annoyed me so much. Just the thought that I, you know, I, I tried to blame them. I told them it was their fault. You know, I mean, I just, I did everything. And this wonderful lady, just absolutely impassive. <laughs> you know, my little explosion didn't last too long. And when it was over, I commended her on how well she handled it. And then I said, I bet you've seen a lot worse. And she agreed that she had <laughs> indeed seen a lot worse. But it was, it was so fascinating to me. What, you know, why would I react? because I didn't want to be there, because I would have to go again, you know, just, I had a hundred things I was protecting. What were you going to say, Jinnabar? A question about Swami. He wouldn't protect because he could feel it, but it just went in and out. Is that it? Well, that's one way to say it, yes, because he was very sensitive. Right. So it wasn't that he wasn't conscious of evil or delusion or anything like that, but he didn't feel threatened by it. There was just no, you know, there was nothing. Whereas I have many things I have to protect. Someone's going to hurt my feelings. Someone's going to insult me. Somebody's action is going to require <clears throat> more work on my part, and I don't want to put out that work. That's what happened at the DMV. I got myself here. I do not want to come back. And so this huge protective thing, not that it was going to make any difference. Like, you know, I'm going to tell her I don't need the document. Like, what good is that going to do me? But none of that was there. It was just, I'm going to have to come back. I don't want to come back. Why do I care whether I have to come back or not? Because I don't like it there, because it's a long drive. You know, just, we don't, we don't think about these things normally, but we're always spinning some kind of I like it, I don't like it, constantly. And Swamiji simply didn't. You know, he was extremely strong, he said his mind, he, once he said, once I make up my mind, as long as I'm convinced it's what I ought to do, nothing will stand in my way. He would just persevere. But he wasn't threatened. His well-being wasn't threatened. It was just, if this doesn't work, I'll do this, and if that has to happen, I'll do this. And he was very observant and very interesting, but there was no emotional reaction to it. Yes? Uh, we were in India one time, and uh, he was giving a talk. Mm-hmm. And someone's cell phone went off. Right. 
And he says, I asked you to turn your cell phones off. He realized it was his cell phone. Right, I remember. <laughs> he holds it up, laughs, puts yeah. the cell phone down. Yeah, because it, it kept ringing. And, and then he actually said, he actually said, very good, Divine Mother. <laughs> the man, of course, who called him that particular time didn't call him again for a really, really, really long time. <laughs> that person shall remain nameless. <laughs> yes, Joyce. Mm-hmm. Actually, the other example that you shared um, on how nothing really affects Swamiji was one time he was here, and I think he was going from maybe the upper part of the dais to the lower part, and he kind of tripped and fell, and then uh-huh. someone went to catch him, I think. Uh-huh. But there's like no break in his movement. Like, yes, he missed a step, and maybe he had to fall, and someone caught him, but in his consciousness, it was like completely smooth the whole there was way. No break. And on two different occasions, I actually, once he was sitting on the dais in a little, in a chair, and he, it, it was right on the edge. And he, well, twice. Once he was just with a group of teachers in some other person's event, and they were all in rocking chairs. And they were, you know, just, they were sitting there rocking like that, and his imperceptibly moved, and then just toppled completely off. He wasn't speaking, and I happened to be watching him, absolutely soundlessly, he just toppled off. And just picked himself up and quietly put his chair back in and just sat in it. But there wasn't, there was no, absolutely no exclamation. Another time at Ananda Village, he was speaking and his chair had been set really close to the edge and he, he was sitting down talking. He did something very exuberant. It pushed his chair off. He fell. He continued his lecture. He just continued his lecture, and he just stood up, and then in that case people came in. But just know, it, it's actually, I've watched myself to see when sudden things happen, whether I exclaim or not. You know, and I'm sort of, I'm trying to train myself not to exclaim, the DMV was a notable failure. <laughs> but you know, if you bump your hand or something like that, just the kind of things where you, there would be a tendency to have a flurry, it's a good thing to try to, just let yourself, when you, as much as you can, just go easily through things. This was the point I was trying to say. It's, it's not a sign of spiritual advancement to allow the world to knock you off your pin so often. It's, it, it, you can feel it. Well, Swamiji said it once, just because I take things calmly does not mean I don't feel them deeply, which was a very important distinction, that the art is to be able to feel things very deeply but not feel that your well-being is threatened and therefore you must react protectively merely because something has entered into you deeply. It's a very refined state and a very subtle one that we all have to work with. And the reason I was making the corrective last week and I'm emphasizing it again is because I myself for many decades actually didn't understand it. You know, because... That sensitivity is part of what brings you to the spiritual path. You know, so many people are just unaware. This morning we were talking about um, Gary McSweeney's son went through our elementary school from kindergarten through eighth grade, and then he's now almost 30, but then he went to St. Francis High School. And he's a very personable man, like his father, and he had many friends. He didn't have any difficulty adjusting, but he just said... I'm just so much more aware than any of my friends. You know, and awareness is a form of sensitivity. He liked them, they all got along with but he just, because of his upbringing, he was just conscious 
of this enormous reality. And his friends just simply weren't. And of course, if you're not aware, you don't notice, you don't feel, you don't care, you don't see the implications. That's how people do the darn things that they do. They just don't know. You know, I've read several, and I'm sure you've read several. I was hearing on, on the radio this whole radio report of a man whose daughter was murdered by a man who was on drugs. And, and the man was suffering so much, eventually just, he felt he made contact with the murderer who'd been convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And over the course of many years, they actually really got to know each other. And the man who had done the murder, he really just didn't know. I mean, to, to someone else it would be obvious, but it could be so insensitive as to think, well, you have it, I want it, I'll take it from you, and in the process you die. And he just didn't know that the woman had a father and a mother and siblings and it's unawareness. Everything, the whole spiritual path is degrees of awareness. So a lot of times, like when a kshatri who's moved by principle or a vaisha who's moved by fear tells a manufacturer of a certain insecticide that he's hurting the planet, the manufacturer could say, well, if I don't make it, somebody else is just going to make it, you know. I might as well support my family with it. And you say, well, what about the little birds? And what about the this? And it's like, you know, what about the little birds? Who cares about the little birds? It's like it's not like he's even uh, cruel. He could be, but he just doesn't, he's just not aware. And when you start thinking of things in terms of awareness, it also tells you, what is it appropriate to say to someone? You, you can't persuade a Vaisha on the basis of principle, because principle isn't real to him, or certainly not a motivating factor, not a motivating factor above self-interest. That's why people are bashing their heads against each other. In our political arena at this point, a lot of what's happening is people are trying to influence by values that are not held by both sides. I mean, both sides are doing it. It's a, it's a terrible, ridiculous impasse that we're in. But nobody can hear anybody else. Nobody's aware of the reality of someone else's position. But it begins with us. You know, forget the national or the international scene. It begins with how we respond. And the most, the simple, most important thing, Master said to Swamiji, at a certain point when Swami was subject to a certain kind of mood or something, Master said to Swami, no more moods now, otherwise you won't be able to help people. And, and for Swamiji... That was a very, very, very powerful incentive. And so, insofar as any of us aspire to help people, the reason to overcome our limitations is because insofar as they uh, determine our response to life, to that extent, we are going to be more concerned about ourselves than we will be about others. It's it's a very simple equation. Haridas, who's so marvelous at putting things in a succinct, simple way, that it's a good thing my spiritual liberation will help other will help other people. Otherwise, I'm not sure it would be worth it to me to try. <laughs> of course, he's half joking, but he's right. If I'm more advanced, I can be more helpful, and that moved him. And the reason Master said that to Swami, because Master knew that was Swami's. Well, he had two motivations: to realize God and to help others to realize Him, and they were equal in his consciousness. So Master could say that to him and he knew it would connect. We ask ourselves, you know, yes, I suffer, but also others will suffer more because I won't be able to help them. That makes sense? I'll give you one more story on this point, which I've, you've heard before, but some of you. 
I, I was raised in a family where we didn't argue. We debated <laughs> intellectually, but we didn't shout at each other in anger. It just rarely happened. I mean, children fight with each other, but insofar as my parents ever had disagreements, they never did it in front of the children. And my father especially was really averse to emotional display. My mother was a little more inclined, but my father really wasn't. And they both felt very strongly that whatever they felt, it was not something to be put in front of the children. Which was much more good than not good. You know, I grew up in a very secure household. But the other side of it was, if anybody actually raised their voice, it was close to the end of the world, as far as I was concerned. You know, it just, it just didn't happen. So I didn't have uh, an ease about outbursts. It was just not part of my way of being. But I realized at a certain point that my peaceableness was not out of a love for peace, it was out of a fear of conflict, which is entirely different. It looked good on the outer ring, but the inner ring was not good. The real, the real pulsing force was a severe limitation. So I needed to learn to speak up, which the realization came to me during the summer I lived in New York City, which is an ideal place to live if you want to learn to just speak up, because nobody notices. You know, it, you can just be real strong and outspoken and outrageous for California, and nobody even thinks twice about it. So I got good at it. I got comfortable. I realized if I had something to say, I could say it in a loud voice, and that was fine. Years later, when I'm at Ananda Village, and we are working, this would have been like the spring and summer of 1977, we were working on publishing The Path. Swami was in seclusion in India, and we were left with responsibility of getting the book ready. There were no computers in those days. It was all done by hand. And there was a group of, of almost, it was almost all women, that the nuns basically were the publication crew. And we worked day and night on getting that book out. And one of the women who worked in that group was Scorpio. And she had no trouble raising her voice at all. She was raised in a family which every dinner ended with one of the three daughters screaming, bursting into tears, running out of the room, slamming the bedroom door. I mean, that was just, that was how her life went. Exactly the opposite of mine. So she was very comfortable. And, and somehow, the te- she was also a very good friend of mine. Somehow the tension was building. You know, we were, we were literally there as many hours as we could work. We, we, we made our meals there. We meditated there as many hours as we could work. It got a little hairy at times. And we were in what is now Hansa Temple, but was then the publications building. So it was a downstairs and an upstairs like this. She was downstairs. I was at the top. And she was having a bad day. I don't even remember what it was. But she started heating up and started expressing herself in a loud tone of voice that could be heard all through the building. Uh, she's talking to me, I'm at the top, we're shouting through the stairwell. And I looked at her and I realized that she really needed to fight with someone. She just needed somebody to fight with. So she wouldn't know that I was fighting if I just said, now, you know, just be calm, there's nothing to be upset about. That would have been just infuriating to her. So she raised her voice, I raised mine, she insulted me, I insulted her. You know, we just had this great time. We got all the way to the crest, you know, blew the whole thing up. I mean, everybody else in the building is have, it's like a living nightmare, but we're just like done. And she crested, I crested, and it was all done. I never was doing more than just really literally serving my friend. It was so interesting to me because I thought, you know, God needed somebody who could yell with her. And wasn't it nice that I was able to do it? Because before that I would not have been able to. My 
sensitivity would have frightened me so much that I wouldn't have been able to do it. And she might have had to fight with somebody who might have actually gotten mad. But instead, do you understand? But that's what made me realize the freer we are, the more God can use us. Because when he needs that, if you happen to have access to it, then he can use you. And if you don't have it, then the opportunity goes by. It's all about the vrittis. It's all about freedom. So that's what, among many reasons why we work on, of course, it feels better. It's nice not to be compelled. We can't help it. I mean, it's not like we can say, oh, I think I'll just be less sensitive. Well, that's a good idea. Why didn't I think of that? You know, <laughs> you, just, you just can't get rid of it that easily. But don't make a virtue of it. That's, that's entirely and only the point. I, I, I make a distinction in my mind between actions I commit and actions I am committed to. And I commit many more actions than I am committed to. But there's a huge difference. Because if you commit it, and you can just say, let's try again next time. But then if you justify it and worship it and explain it and cling to it, then you have a, a double problem, which you don't really want to have. Okay, enough about that. Anything else that needs to be said? It's an extremely important point. That's why I spent so much time on it. All right. And all of that came last week out of a smile and his eyes, which were extraordinarily expressive. Because I was talking about the kind of freedom that allowed him to express completely his consciousness through his eyes. Because he wasn't afraid. It's very wonderful to contemplate what it would be like not to be afraid. Almost, well, virtually, virtually every vice comes down to fear. I would, I would go so far as to say everyone does. We're always afraid of something. If we're not afraid, we behave entirely differently. And we have lots of other reasons for it, but if you really, really, really drill down, pretty much every time, as far as I've been able to find out, I'm afraid of something. You know, just afraid of something. And, and if you can get down to what you're actually afraid of, uh, then you can untie it from the source. Otherwise, you're just rearranging the surface. You're just changing your shirt. You know, you're not really... Uh, doing anything different. So, this is the middle of number 303. It's the middle of a paragraph in number 303. And so Swamiji is uh, talking about, he's answering the question, how was Master as a person? What was his appearance? How did he comport himself? So now we're in the middle of the paragraph, and he says, his eyes were deeply calm and profoundly penetrating. Penetrating is an interesting word, isn't it? Looking into them, one saw no glimmer of ego or of any personal feeling at all. I often thought of them as windows onto infinity. His hands and feet were small. His complexion was rather dark and full of vitality. Toward the end of Swami's life, maybe he said it earlier, but I remember him saying it much more later, he would go like this and he would say, you know, my hands look like Master's hands. And he was just so, you know, he was just, isn't it interesting, he would say. And then we, every once in a while we'd look at a photograph and he would say, yes, my hands. It was, it was like it pleased him. And he also th- just thought it was interesting. Because in other ways, he, of course, he didn't look anything like Master. <clears throat> his feet were very odd and they didn't look anything like Master's. But his hands did. <laughs> they were a little bit small and a little pudgy. But um, 
Um, on other places, Swamiji has said that when you look into Master's eyes, there was no glimmer of ego. And again, I, I've looked at Master's eyes and tried to, to think about that. So Master also talks about in the last smile, when Master was really just about to leave this world, and he knew he was. You know, just the sort of the, the look that was in his eyes. And he uses the word penetrating, which when you think of eyes being penetrating you tend to think of a kind of uh, personal force pushing a little bit like that. So when I I heard that word, I had to stop and think about it for a little while. I think they were penetrating because there was just so much divine power in that gaze. You know, if someone's looking at you with so so much clarity, it it, it befuddles us a little bit and it, it takes a certain amount of strength of character to just be able to, to be seen. I, I worked in the er- very early years as Swami's secretary, and among other things, I, I was his appointment secretary. And during those years, this was the, the first half of the 1970s, or much of the 1970s, he used to give Sunday services at the seclusion retreat, and then the afternoon he would give uh, personal interviews with people, counseling appointments. And I would make those appointments, and then sit on the porch of his dome and he would meet with people inside inside and I would sit with people and and I want to make it efficient I always had them come you know at least 10 minutes early so they would be there so that we could just not take too much of Swami's time and I gradually realized that my entire job was just to calm people down you know because many of them hardly knew Swamiji he was very very available to everyone then or if they did they had this. They they were aware of the fact that he had, he would have great insight into their character, and for almost almost everyone, not everyone, for almost everyone, that would made them very nervous. The the idea that someone would know them, actually, for most people, made them nervous, which was ironic, actually, as I would try to explain. I became rather adept at doing this. That. Uh, Everybody around you is judging you all the time and it doesn't occur to you to be nervous. <laughs> and you're finally actually going to be in the company of someone who won't judge you and now is the time you're deciding to be nervous. It's really quite scrambled up. But still, there's, there's just... There's so much... Uh, I'm actually, let me just try to think from what the actual reality is. It's the, there's often a lot of contrast between the consciousness you feel there and the consciousness you feel in yourself. And I don't mean nervousness. Just, Swami would be so calm. You just sort of come in, you know, like this, and it's like coming into a really silent room and every little noise seems really big. And so either you just relax into it and, and go into that, or you become, the contrast makes you nervous. And, you know, a lot for a lot of people it did make them nervous. I actually liked it. I, I preferred it. So I, I wasn't, as a rule, that nervous around him. But still, it's very penetrating. Master's just looking at you. But, and also, it's not that easy to receive love. A lot of times we give because it protects us from having to receive. And that can go into its own huge psychological syndrome, where as long as I'm giving... I don't have to actually stop and allow people's energy to come in. And people have that difficulty. And they'll say, you know, 
when I'm sick or I got sick or I became debilitated so that I would learn to ask for help. This is what people will say. But when I certainly felt it and I've described it to you in terms of a seclusion that I had when I tried to become receptive to Divine Mother's presence. And at that point I became aware of that I, I was holding a, a very large amount of agitation in my heart. And even the effort to become receptive just made me so conscious of that agitation. And so when you're with someone who's really trying to give to you, if, if you've been spending a lot of time protecting yourself from other people's energy, it's, it can be. It doesn't have to be, but it can be disconcerting. And somebody's just looking at you very calmly, and if you're accustomed to, to hiding yourself, penetrating is a very real word. But that's part of the, uh, the exchange of magnetism that transforms us. And it's true with the photograph. It's, it's not just a question of the presence, it's true with the photograph. You know, it's, it's there in the eyes. And if you tune into it deeply enough, the whole... You don't have to be in the physical presence because you're in the presence. Which is one of the reasons I'm, I'm going to use uh, my bully pulpit here to say something else I want to say. I am, I am concerned about the trend to use color pictures when we have black and white photographs. But, but so many altars I've begun to see in many places of Ananda are no longer photographs. Now we're using paintings because we want it, we like them to be color. But the paintings are not the actual eyes of the master. Or we're using colorized versions of the photographs in which the eyes have been tampered with. And in some cases, I mean, here's a color picture. In some cases, it's fine, but not in all. And a painting is not a photograph. I always say to people, if we had a photograph of Jesus, wouldn't you want to see the photograph? So inasmuch as we have a photograph of our other masters, why would we not use the photograph? And I I was actually talking to Sneha recently. I I came up with an idea that I see that other people are working with, which is to colorize everything but the face. And then you can get the artistic effect of having color but you don't touch the actual expression. Because the eyes are so important. Even there's a, a tendency on our altar, you see that the picture of Sri Yukteswar, I'm not Sri Yukteswar, of Lahiri, is fuzzier than some you'll see in other places. Because people have largely shifted over to using Sananda Ghosh's painting that he took from this photograph. But he painted it in such a way that you think it's a photograph. But if you compare the two, it is not. It is a painting of a photograph. Even, unbelievably, in one of the first editions of Autobiography of a Yogi, someone just used that painting instead of the actual photograph, which was really an embarrassment to me because I made a huge deal on one of our websites about the fact that SRF did exactly that. <laughs> then I opened one of our own books and I was... And it was done by a designer who thought, well, this is a clearer version, I'll use this. The facts are lost. I think it matters. To me it matters. And, you know, these are just ideas that it's very easy to just, you move over a quarter inch at a time. 
And then all of a sudden, on, on all our altars, we have paintings of the masters. We don't have photographs anymore. But the painting is not the photograph. Uh, yes, I definitely agree with that because my um, little routine before I meditate is to talk to Master. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at his photograph. And of course, physically he's not there, but he's there as much as I can do. And, exactly. Uh, I can sit to see what, you, uh, what you're talking yeah, about. Exactly. That makes a lot of difference. Now, I mean, there is... Sometimes an artist adds. Sometimes an artist has a true inspiration and he adds. And once you're do, using a sculpture or a morti, a morti, you know, it's they have their own power. But it it doesn't. It seems to me they ought not to substitute for. That's just this is my fetish. I have one. I admit it. This is not even the gospel according to Asha. This is Asha just mildly ranting a little. Okay, <laughs> but I feel like these things need to be said where they can be heard. Okay, so. There he has, looking into them, one saw no glimmer of ego or any personal feelings at all. And you have to understand, when he said any personal feelings, it doesn't mean that he's unfeeling. It means no egoic-based self-definitions. It was just what I was talking about, Swami. Because that's the paradox. The less you have of your own preferences, the more you can give. And the more perfect the channel, the more you love, the less personal you are, the more you love. It's very confusing. It took me about 20 years to understand what that meant. Okay. So his complexion was rather dark, and I love that phrase, but full of vitality. You know, what what that means. I mean, he was just so full of life and energy, and, you you, you know, he, he was fully alive all the time. He always sat, stood, and walked with a straight back. Sometimes in comportment he appeared abstracted, but it was clear that his mind was actively occupied either with some deep inner experience or with reflections concerning a matter that was demanding his active attention. His powers of concentration were enormous. So there's a great deal of difference between being abstracted because you're not present and being abstracted because you're preoccupied with something else. And I think one of the... uh, uh, when I use the phrase awareness as being the full definition of self-realization, one of the one of the characteristics of the of the shudra caste, the lowest caste, is the tendency to find comfort by lowering one's energy and awareness. And so that is a lot of the habits that we get into. It's not merely that we do active things that lower our awareness, like drugs or drinking or too much television or any of the things that we do, which all of us do, um, but not drugs and drinking, but opportunities when I think I'll just watch a movie kind of feeling rather than do something active and creative. There's an inclination for most of us to want to do that. But there's another kind of even more insidious kind of lowering of our energy, which is just lowering our energy. And just not being present. And, and a lot of times, that becomes a habit. And one just gets in the habit of just, I don't know, zoning out, or just not being creative in your mind. And that's one of the reasons why seva is so important, service is so important. Remember there was a woman whom Swami kept working all the time. 
And then one of her friends said, Swami, you need to tell so-and-so to take a day off sometimes. Swami very sternly said to the other friend, I know what she needs. Because as soon as she was not actively engaged, she did not rise. She fell. She fell into dullness and she fell into moods. And there was no point in allowing that to happen. It was far better to keep constantly outwardly engaged. And that's what we need to pay attention. I I remember uh, a married couple, and and the marriage did not work at all for very long. The man was exceedingly active to the point of being rajasic. He wasn't sattvic in his activity, but he was always active. She had been accustomed to maintaining her equanimity by sinking into a semi-subconscious state a lot of the time. I mean, semi-subconscious by just meaning dull. I don't want to talk. I don't want to think about anything. You know how, how people can get, don't talk to me. I, I just got home from work. Just leave me alone. But just kind of dull. And, in, in, and when they started living together, you know, she lost that ability to just zone out because he was so always dynamically engaged. And it, it, instead of her understanding, you know, what was being asked of her, she just intensely resented it. And it, it became very difficult. It just wasn't a good match. These things happen a lot. <laughs> but it's, it's also, it's like we have to watch ourselves. Am I being active and creative? And, and even if we're choosing not to be, be conscious of it. Don't just let it come over us and realize that we've just been sitting around doing nothing much. I mean, take up knitting. It doesn't have, you don't have to write plays, you know, just, but do, do something rather than nothing. You know, try to, try to keep energy flowing as much as possible and try to get out of the habit of comforting myself by getting dull. Try as much as we can. My, my great vice in life is novels reading novels. TMN, I suffer too many novels. It's my drug of choice. (laughs) And over the last 15 years, you know, I've been trying to ease myself out of it. I still read for recreation, but I've been trying to read biographies, you know, and just something. Because the novel has a whole different effect on me, at least. But just, I, I, I told you after I finished writing Swami's book, and I... I was so tired. I didn't realize how tired I was till I finished. Uh, I just didn't know what to do with myself. So I actually, I literally, I read six novels. It was just perfect. I went on a complete holiday over about three days. Just charming, trivial books that went in and out of my head. But it was the right use. It was the right use of time. Because there was, I was too done in to do anything else. So I consciously chose to go on holiday with my mind. But reading a novel is not really a vice. I mean, it's a pleasant... Swami read many novels. It's a, it's a pleasant form of relaxation. For me, it's a drug. But used, used with self-control, it's a good idea. But when Master looked like he wasn't there, he was actually somewhere else. I'll tell you one more thing about one woman who had a tendency to zone out and not be thinking and lowering your energy. Uh, This was all from way back in the early years. She said, Swami used to say, she spent a lot of time with him, she said he would often say preposterous things to her just to see if she was listening. (laughs) 
I, was, I never witnessed it, but she said he would just say, you know, I mean, I don't know if it was on the level of the peacocks in the lawn or eating the, the robin egg or whatever, but she, it, she made me think it was on that level. You know, that he would just say something completely preposterous. Because, so she would just say, uh-huh, yeah, sure. You know. <laughs> Tommy kept us very awake. You'd just make some casual, vacuous comment and he never let anything go by, ever. Ever, but what that was was you know you had to you had to be there wasn't there was no tension in it, but he was always wide awake, and everything he said had content and required that you meet him on his level, which was a tremendous blessing, because it was, he was interesting, he was entertaining. You wanted to hear what he had to say. He said once. Well, actually, he said it to me. I might as well say it. I had a tendency to mumble. I had a conflict between wanting to communicate and not wanting to communicate. It was very complex. So I, I would mumble. And uh, once he was, you know, he just, he tried so many different ways to get me to stop doing it. And one time he said to me, with some people I would be glad not to understand a lot of what they say. <laughs> he said, but most of what you say is interesting and I would rather be able to hear it. <laughs> You know, he was he was scolding me and teasing me simultaneously. So I was after that. That actually was a turning point because I realized, oh, he really does what I does want to hear it. So if I'm going to bother to say it, I should say it so he can hear it. Anyway, but yeah, all that's true. Okay, so his powers of concentration were enormous. Whatever he did had his full focus. I never saw him vague. And this is Swami saying, I never saw him vague, dull, or absent-minded in this sense. Though he was often deeply concentrated within, he was altogether different from the popular image of the absent-minded professor, one who looks about vaguely for his glasses, let us say, though they happen to be sitting on his nose. Indeed, the master had fun sometimes over the classic professorial image. This is in keeping with Sri Yukteswar saying spirituality is not dumbness and learn to behave. You know, there's, just, there's no excuse. If, if you're really beyond this world, that's quite different. But too many people are beneath this world rather than beyond it. So this is a story Master told. There was a philosopher, he said, who flicked the ash of his cigarette down the back of his wife's dress what are you doing? she cried indignantly. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, he replied with a cloud-like smile. I, I thought you were the wall. <laughs> that was just master sense of humor. All right. You know, because there are a lot, a lot of people who play at spirituality and they sort of play at being above it. Or they don't know better. They're either deliberately trying to deceive or as Swamiji remarked more charitably, sometimes people... Especially, especially, he said, Indian teachers who come to America, they just really don't know what's expected of them. And sometimes they fall into patterns because people put it on them and they sort of begin to think this is what they're supposed to be like. And so it's not always ill-intended. Sometimes it's just confusion. In a certain context, Swami said, I have an advantage, one, because I'm an American, and two, because I don't care at all what people think of me. <laughs> so there's never any need to put on airs. Because of his spontaneity, I could never predict with any certainty how Master would respond in any situation. He had no set attitudes. Whatever he did was exactly right for that moment. 
This is a quality I saw in Swami Kriyananda all the time. It would often come up in the context of writings or promotions because I would be working on things like that. Where, you know, well, this big thing happened in the, what would it have been? must have been the late 70s. We had a certain brochure about Ananda that I had written, and it was, it was informative and it was nice, but it was out of date, so we had to write another one. So I worked on it and I wrote another one, which, you know, was also pretty good. But I gave it to Swami and he looked at it, and then he, he, wrote, it, he wrote something completely different. Just like mine was factual and informational, he wrote one that started with all the miracles that had saved Ananda and how the devotees were always protected and, you know, just took, picked up from a completely different angle. And I, I, I sort of, this was the period of time when most of the writing I did, he threw away. But he said it was helpful to him because I would point out to him what we didn't need to say. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a long, I've, I've almost forgotten about it, but it was, a, it was not my easiest period in my life. And, uh, but in this case, I said, you know, what is here? He said, well, what you did was very good. He said it was very good, except it's not what's needed now. And I had just thought it was needed yesterday, so it must be needed today. And instead, Swami just cleared the deck and actually tried to think, what do we need now? And then he came up with a wholly different reality. Interestingly, most people did not agree. And so for approximately ten years, we did not have a brochure about Ananda because many people did not want to print what Swami had written, but I couldn't possibly have printed what I had written. So people would say, we need a brochure about Ananda, why don't you work on one? And I would say, we can't. I mean, and and now I look at what Swami wrote and it seems so obvious. I, I didn't actually feel that way because I would... I just took what he would do and I figured he knew what he was doing. But it was very far out. I mean, mine was about how many goats there were in the dairy and how many acres we had and how many children there were in the school and what the process was for becoming a member. And his was about the miracles that had saved us and how God always protects his devotees. I mean, he just, his, his comment to me was this. He said, people cannot imagine what Ananda is. In their imagination, Ananda is about this big. He said, when you write like that, Ananda gets about this big. He said, but if you make it only this big, people will think of it as like this, because they can't imagine it. If I make it here, he said, it'll come closer to what it actually is. And it was a very simple way to think about it. He knew human nature. I just was doing it from the bottom up. Uh, Twenty years after the oratorio was written, uh, when they, they were having, a, it might have been the tour that a lot of Americans went on where we were, performing, I think, in Italy. Yes, it was that tour. When we first put out the oratorio, we wrote this long brochure about how Swami went to Israel, and he went to all these places, and he meditated, and this is what he did. You know, it was like a a four-page document, very interesting. So this tour comes, this is 20 years after the music has been written, or, yeah, it would have been maybe that long. And uh, so it was written up again. Swami saw it, and he said, the music speaks for itself now, we don't need this. And then he just wrote a very simple piece. You know, it's like it had been established. But none of us, it's like this is what we always write, so this is what we write. Uh, when, he's, he, when he canceled the in- effort to incorporate Ananda as a California city, and I was just gung-ho going forward with the project, and he meditated and asked Master, 
And Master said, no, you've taken it far enough, stop. You can just, you know, in a minute, it stopped. Like this, 18 months of determined effort on my part just stopped. And I said to Swamiji, he said, he, he sort of apologized to me. And he said, uh, but when I meditated, I really felt Master saying no. And I, I, when I thought further, I understood. I said, why didn't he tell me? <laughs> I was a lot more involved in it than you. <laughs> he said, did you ask? I said, no. I assumed if he approved yesterday, he approved this morning. And, you know, so I didn't have to finish. He didn't have to say anything else. That was the whole answer. Did you ask? Did you stop? Did you clear your mind? Did you really you know, receive. And that doesn't mean that every two minutes you have to stop and ask if you should keep walking. You know, as Swami said in another context, if it's a good thing and you're trying to do it, you don't have to ask Master every day whether you should do it. Of course you should. But you should ask him how to proceed every day. You know, what's next? And that when he, that's where he talked about Master. You could never predict. And I, you could never predict with Swamiji. He wouldn't, what he said to you today, he would not necessarily just say to anybody else ever again. And he might not say it to you tomorrow. Because it wasn't what he was saying, it was the energy he was trying to create. And once the energy was created, then another answer would be there. So even when a person brings a circumstance to him, it's not the circumstance that's the issue, it's what is your consciousness and what do you need? And so he would answer accordingly. Which was, it's, it was, hopefully it's a moving target and not just a, you know, a fixed thing that's just always the same and the advice is always the same. It's very, um, often when I have talked to people and have, you know, repeatedly over the years, I've been able to say to many people, don't worry, we don't have the same conversation twice. You know, I don't mind if we have to talk every few days. We're not having the same conversation. Every conversation, there's we've moved and we're talking about something else. And it's not merely because I'm creative, it's because you're moving. But that's, you know, what the, how the masters respond to us. It's a completely new moment. Again, the reason Swami's telling us these things is because in our own way we can emulate them. That's the whole point. Let's take a few minutes. Maybe we did. Was the intermission on Facebook? Okay, we just had a very good intermission. Okay, sorry you missed it. (laughs) Okay, so any comments or thoughts before we go on? I have to find my place here. Sharing with Sneha that what I noticed tonight is something you probably do all the time, but I haven't noticed it that frequently. Every time um, Swami makes a remark about uh, his experience of what Master was like, which is so much of this book, you immediately tonight, just about every single time, are saying, you know, Swami was just like that. And you describe him. And I know that's true, and I know that's who he is. But uh, tonight it's so vivid. Well, I'm glad of it's that. Be- it's really beautiful. Well, the truth of the matter is, Swami testified about Master because he saw him, I testified about Swami. But also because Swami imitated Master in every meaningful way. And I mean, I remember at a certain point, just saying, you know, it, it, was, it, would, it should have been obvious, but early on Swami was so understated. Um, I just said, you know, if the way you do things is the way Master did things, isn't that so? He said, of course. And I said, and if you don't do it a certain way, that's because Master didn't do it that way. He said, of course. Yeah. With the single exception of drinking coffee. <laughs> Thank God for that. 
at the end of his life, didn't Swami say something like um, he had kind of lost uh, the distinction between where uh, Master ended and, and Swami Kriyananda began? Yes, he said exactly that. He said it much earlier than the end of his life. He said it for the first time after he wrote The Essence of Self-Realization. That would have been uh, February of 1990. He said, you know, this, this book has marked a turning point in my discipleship. I no longer can tell where Master ends and I begin. Just because of the necessity to tune in so deeply. I, I, my experience of Swamiji is that's when he said it. It's not necessarily that's when he felt it, but that's when he said it. So you know, it's, it's a little. You'll you'll see when you read the book that I wrote. He, you know, he, he, to my experience, his consciousness was always the same, but the way he expressed himself um, evolved or changed. Is really, uh, it. He 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 put a veil over his consciousness for many many years, and then very gradually over time, let it go until the end. He just let it go completely. It was partly because, especially when he started, it was the crazy 60s and 70s, and everybody was a guru, just left, right, and center. And I mean, really, literally, we had so much fun. Magazine, there was one particular guy whose life actually ended quite tragically. But he put himself out as a guru, and he actually had a resume. Put this ad in one of the magazines, had a resume. Everything he'd done in this life, what he'd done in the previous life, all the other ones, you know. It was, it was like a resume, except it was a biography of all his great incarnations. I mean, we laughed and laughed. So, but that's, and people were taking it seriously because uh, people in America didn't know any better. So these Indian people would come over or Americans would get a bee in their bonnet and they would just say the most preposterous things and everyone would say, yes, Master, yes, Master. And it was just, it was nuts. And Swami would have none of it. And also he felt that, that as a disciple of an avatar, <clears throat> the attention needs to go to the avatar. Even though there are disciples, if the attention goes immediately to this disciple, then it will go immediately to the next disciple. And pretty soon your source will be so diluted that no one will be drawing from and water never flows higher than its source. So he felt it was vitally important that the five masters be understood as the source of what we were doing. And then even if, you know, he became, as he gradually articulated more clearly, responsible for this little enclave, he was teaching us to understand what the source was. And if the, if the energy stopped with him, it, it just was incomplete. It wasn't a true teaching. If you think about Jesus and all of the great saints that there have been since, and how all of those saints, like Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross and St. Francis, they all ha- they started uh, they, they started spiritual movements, they started monasteries, they rearticulated the teachings, they drew thousands sometimes of people to them, but no one ever thinks that they replaced Christ. Because in the positive sense, this is the positive part of it, the institution of the church has held that image of Christ as the only Son of God to a fault, so they don't even understand their own saints. But the positive result of that is that all of Francis's disciples, because that's of course who they were, they all collectively worship Jesus. 
and Francis taught them to love Jesus. They loved Francis because he taught them to love Jesus. And it was Francis's inspiration and guidance that enabled them to love Jesus. But the power remained strong. Swami also said quite simply, you know, we don't need any more gurus. What people need to understand is how to be a disciple. And so he thought his responsibility was to show us what a disciple looked like because people did not understand how to be a disciple. You know, it was uh, desperately looking for someone to tell me what to do and hopefully then put me into samadhi and that'll be that. It just, it just really, you had, you had to have been there, but it, it persisted all the way through to the end. I mean, in terms of the, the, the lack of understanding of what it means to be a disciple. And really, it won't do you any good to have a guru if you don't know how to be a disciple. Because then you're just sitting around waiting for the guru to do it for you. But as an example of a disciple, Swamiji was extraordinary. There's just, I mean, there's no comparison. There's nothing, there's nothing you can say that compares him to anything. But part of that was that he kept us understanding what we were doing. Which did not diminish his importance. So it, it got very complicated. He said himself, Master told him that he would be more than a teacher, that he would actually have, and the phrase he used was spiritual responsibility for people. And you know, what does that actually mean? We were just talking, it was part of the intermission discussion. I always, I understood Master because I understood Swami, or let me phrase it differently. I came to anything I did understand about Master, I understood through Swami, either from knowing Swami or from what Swami said. And, you know, people would say, because it was the politics of, the, of who's the guru, are, are, are very odd because of the SRF Ananda conflict. It wouldn't be so complicated if it wasn't because of that. One of my, an American Swami who lives in India said to me, he said... No one ever makes such a big deal about asking him. Because he said about three or four different people that you might call his guru. He says, only people from SRF or Ananda are concerned about it. He said, everybody else in India just takes it, but we're all, we have, there's all this politics about it, which is, was very confusing. And so what was I going to say? Oh, yes. So Swami would, people would ask, you know, who's who? I said, this was my standard answer. Because I, I needed to, I needed to be loyal to what Swami wanted. I couldn't just assert what I wanted. I said, the difference between Master and Swamiji is not clear to me. The difference between me and Swami is very clear to me. (laughs) So I will close that distance first and then I'll worry about the next step. Because it was just, there it was. I could tell what to do because I could see him. And after that, the the mystery of how a, a guru liberates his disciple is a little beyond my comprehension. And I just didn't feel that I needed to understand it. I just, I've never, I've never, let me say how to say that. I'm, I'm extremely practical. I have an intense interest in the philosophy. But I have learned from Swamiji that what interests me is how it's going to actually affect my life. Just to just muse about things. Some people are more interested in that, but I'm not. So it just, it has to come back, this is partly because I'm, I guess because I'm a cancer and I'm very personally oriented. It has to come back to something I can actually use. You know, and what I can use 
is that Swami tells me what Master was like and I look at Swami and I see what he's talking about and then I look at myself and I try to close the distance. That's why I, I, I point out, you know, so many times, Master's eyes were very expressive. We did a whole class on Master's eyes are very expressive. And you could just say Master's eyes were expressive. Isn't that wonderful? Look at the pictures. But how will that help us? It'll help us because we'll want to look into his eyes, yes. But he's an example of what we have to become. That's the point. And the reason I have always been so focused on Swami is because, wow, there's an example of what it means to be a disciple, which is pretty much my job. Being a guru is not my job. My job is to be a disciple. So there's one I think I'll try to learn. And then it gets, you know, who's teaching who? But the, the thing, this is the last point, which is very important. I would often try to say to people, if you, if you go to a good piano teacher, the teacher will teach you to play music. And if you're not completely crass, if you have a good teacher and that teacher teaches you to play the music, you will be extraordinarily grateful to that teacher and extremely attentive. But what happens at the end of it is that you can play the music. And that's what you rejoice about. But it, as I say, it would be a, a course not to be grateful to the one who taught you. But if it's a good teacher, it teaches you to play the music. And so, you know, in those ways you can understand. And beyond that, I just think it's... What we think is so small compared to what is. You know, it's just... I like... This is the George Washington Carver story when he... Uh, he was the uh, the, the uh, saintly scientist who did so many things. He was born just at the end of the Civil War and he really helped the black people establish themselves outside of slavery and invented many things and so on. But he was a very saintly man and had this very direct relationship with God. And he, he would go out early in the morning and walk through the woods and talk to God. And so he said, he was talking to God one morning, he said, God... Why did you make creation? And God answered him. This is George would tell the story. God answered him, George, that's a mighty big question for someone like you. (laughs) And so then George said, God, why did you make me? That's better, George, but that's still a mighty big question for someone like you. So then George said, well, sir, why did you make the peanut? Now that's a question we can work together on. <laughs> and then he went to his lab and invented 300 uses for the peanut and trans- transformed the economy of the South by, by, by because of that. <laughs> that's where it came from. God told him. And so they planted, they, they planted all these peanuts. It became a huge cash crop. And all these liberated black people were able to earn a living because George Washington Carver asked God, what can you do with the peanut? <laughs> so it's just everything about that story is so wonderful including the fact that we now have peanut butter <laughs> before that they fed the peanuts to the hogs Yeah, they fed the peanuts to the hogs they grew peanuts but it was just for animal feed but it, they grew freely and well and they grew I believe they grew well and in fact I believe they reconstituted the land that had been ruined by cotton you know, I mean, it, you, we don't think about these things. George Washington Carver was, he, he, he probably wasn't an avatar, but he was a very highly evolved soul who was born to help the slaves transition into freedom. Because they suddenly, they don't belong to anybody anymore. They, they had no idea how to earn a living. They really didn't understand how, how to do anything. He had to teach them everything. 
because they had been treated like animals and like property. And all of a sudden, they're, they're walking down the road, you know, because the South has been devastated. And then he and this other man, uh, Tuskegee University, whoever founded that, I mean, the two of them together, they created Booker T. Washington. They created a way of life for those slaves and trans- transported them. Actually, the Jews coming out of Egypt were in the same condition, which is they had been slaves. They didn't have a way of living. And that's why Moses gave them the Ten Commandments. They needed a way to live because they had don't, they'd been slaves for so long. They, they no longer had a, a free life. Oh, here's a cartoon. Here's Moses standing on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments tablets like this. And it says, the first man to download onto a tablet something from the cloud. So, moving right along. So, we just said Master was always in the moment. One day I came to Master, the bearer I was sure of good news. Happily I said, Sir, we have a new man for the print shop. We'd been needing someone there for months. Why do you tell me that? Master demanded indignantly. First see if he has our spirit. Then teach him how to deepen that spirit. Only then see where he might be useful. Two others have already come and told me we have a new candidate for the print shop, Master said. I never ask anyone first, what can he do? I look at the spiritual side. Swami says, if you think of what they can do for you, you're just using people. So it's just, you can't do that. And Swami goes on, it took me years to understand that the Master viewed the organization itself as only a means to higher individual consciousness. That's, you know, that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Otherwise, the organization has, as such, had no meaning for him. This is quite in contradiction to what the organization presently says, but Swami is being very definite here. The organization as such had no meaning for him. It was only the means to higher individual consciousness. He used to say firmly and with sincerity, I could walk away from this work right now and never look back. And then Swami says, Believe me, sir, Swami replied, abashed by his rebuke about the new man, his spirit is my concern too. I didn't say it, but it was certainly what I meant. Perhaps I should have reported first that he said to me, I'm glad to see that you all pray with such devotion. Swami says, I had invited him to my meditation room, and together we had listened to recordings of Hindu devotional singing and he loved them. That's what I wanted to hear, said the master approvingly. Swami goes on, I had yet to learn, however, to become more sensitive to the fact that master worked with intuitive insight above all. This young man proved on acquaintance to be only superficially devotional. The master was kind to him and sometimes even teased him a little in a friendly way. Privately, however, he told me that he wasn't really suitable for the path. Not long afterwards, our new man for the print shop left. You know, there's just, there's so much in there. Swami talks about how organizations gradually atrophy because as you begin to get more efficient, you begin to prefer people who are more efficient. And you also begin to attract people who are more efficient. And as he said, if you get somebody saintly who 
is kind of sloppy at keeping the accounts, you're going to, accountant is going to want an accountant who's going to do it well. And it's, you know, just even, even though I love having this building and having this space has made our lives work, I mean, we, we, we're able to do so much as a sangha because of this room. You know, just the beauty of it, the size of it, everything, it's just really heavenly. But the very fact that it's here <laughs> gives a certain impression. And the more beautiful we make it, and I was remembering, I saw some uh, picture of when we were first in here and it had all the brown rugs and everything was brown and so on. The more you want to make it beautiful and the more it being beautiful becomes part of how you're thinking and you just see, even with the best of intentions, how it begins to creep in. Just like that. I was, I was reading this book about writing that uh, Helen gave me. It's very entertaining. This man worked, wrote for the New Yorker magazine for a long time. He described how for so many years the New Yorker magazine worked out of a very tiny, crowded, messy place. And for years when it was a great magazine. And then eventually, of course, they got successful and they got this big building. And um, Alfred Lord Northcote wrote the book Parkinson's Law. By the time you have time to build your headquarters... You, it means that you're no longer really doing creative work anymore because your mind is turned to how can I make myself more comfortable rather than how can I be creative and serve my mission. I don't think we're anywhere near that point. But we, we should always watch, you know, what is really the most important thing here. When uh, a friend of mine, uh, when, when we went to New Zealand uh, the first time, whatever year that was, in the fall of 2017, Rachel and Brian went with me from Ananda village and Rachel had had helped a lot with all the Kriyas Um, it was just something that she liked to do she would set up for the Kriyas and so on when we were in New Zealand the first Kriya ceremony we did we did in a private home in this man's house he was in his 80s and he'd been a Kriya bond through SRF for about 40 or 50 years he'd lived in the same house for a very very long time his wife who had also been a disciple was now a little bit physically diminished and so she came to the ceremony in her pajamas. And the room was just chaos because it had been this man's office forever and it was also his meditation space. I mean, it was, uh, it was not your common setting for a Kriya initiation. And we initiated about eight people who probably never could have gotten Kriya any other way. And it was, you know, we just pushed stuff back. And, you know, put the masters there, and that, that was just what we did. It was a wonderful ceremony. And afterwards, Rachel remarked, oh, it reminds me. She said, because I set up all the time, I'm always looking at the checklist. You know, and I worry that if the handkerchief is out of place, that the grief is not going to go properly. Oh, yeah, that's not really what we're doing. So if God gives more, it's natural to respond to it. But we always have to keep it in line. One last story on that, and then I'll stop for tonight. When uh, Biraj and Lahari lived in Rhode Island, and uh, Shant, uh, Prem Shanti and Om Prakash also lived there, and Swami was coming. It was this incredible thing. They had this land at that point, and it was a huge thing. And then a bunch of us flew out from the west coast to be there. Swami was coming back from Europe, and Lahari and uh, Prem Shanti just you know had they set up this tent and they had all these beautiful things and you know she's a, she's a marvelous that way and it was all set up it had been 80 degrees for a whole week and then the day swami arrived it started pouring torrential rain and turned rather chilly and 
there was no indoor space. It all had to still happen in the tent. And, and we were, you know, we're there in, in and there's, it, the tent has no floor. So, you know, it's muddy. So we're all there either in muddy shoes or in boots. And we've got our jackets on and our scarves on. And, you know, the, the stage is lined with silk and we're all walking across it. I mean, it was a mess, a total mess. I was just aghast. I didn't have anything. But I experienced enough to see what they intended compared to what happened. It didn't matter at all. It was so dramatic to me that all of that careful preparation, just nothing could happen the way it was meant. It had been so carefully thought out and it was just chaos and it didn't matter at all. Unfortunately, they all just let it go too. But boy, when I came home, did that ever teach me? Because, you know, I can be really precise. You know, it it would look better if it was a quarter of an inch to the left. And, you know, if people went around this way, it would be more efficient than if they went around that way. And, you know, all things being equal, one should always try to improve. But it really doesn't matter. So when it falls apart around you, just enjoy the party. (laughs) And I really, since that time, I've hardly ever worried about the way things go. Oh, you know, seems we need a fire pit. I wonder where the fire pit is. Oh yeah, could you get the fire pit? You know, like what difference does it make? Who cares? All right, I think that'll do us for tonight. We simply meandered through 303 and never finished it. So that's all we did. <laughs>